Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. What factors pushed you towards psychology as a vocation? I think in my own vocational journey, I was really interested from a young age, probably adolescence, in how to walk with people when they got stuck. That was really interesting to me, kind of seeing that happen to some people and also just seeing that as really a sacred space of when we really hit those points where things are not coming together the way we thought they would, or they're just, we're not progressing and thinking about what would it look like? And psychology for me was a clear way to do that. I thought about what it would look like to do that more through a ministry lens at different times in my life. And came back to the scientific ways of knowing as compelling for me also. So I was really interested in using how we understand the world and people's lived experience to help us help people move forward. And I think this spiritual lens and those supports are incredibly important, but it ultimately wasn't the place where I personally felt led or called to intervene or to walk with people. And I fell in love with research as an undergraduate student. I thought, oh, I think I want to do psychology. And so I started doing research because I knew that was the thing that I needed to do. And I found it so exciting. That's not something you always hear about research, but I found the experience of asking a new question that no one has ever asked before and getting an answer, whether it was the answer I anticipated or not, as a really fantastic approach and kind of design and discovery process. And so it was a way for me to understand more about the world and understand more about people. And that makes me feel like I understand more about God. So all of that came together for me. So you're a little bit of a science nerd. (laughs) Not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know that when you say psychology, like a lot of people are just clinicians, like just Meaning they just do the clinical side of doing therapy in the room with a person. And then there's this other group of people that does research, psychology Mm -hmm. research. And then there's some folks who do a little bit of both, which you're one of those folks. Can you give us a little, like for someone who doesn't know, like the scientific method, and you talked about like Mm. scientific ways of learning and knowledge. What does that look like for psychology? I think people think of a scientist in a lab, like looking through a microscope or doing chemistry or whatever. People have that image in their mind. But when you Mm -hmm. talk about doing like science experiments, quote unquote, for psychology, what 
are you talking about? What does that look like in the context of psychology? Yeah, so I think about psychology in the broad domain of science. So I think about it as the study, the scientific study of people, specifically how they think, feel, and behave. And that can be operationalized. It can be measured. It can be talked about in several different ways. But ultimately, it boils down to asking rigorous and controlled questions about people. And so when I say controlled, we can ask questions to anybody in lots of different ways, but that doesn't mean we're going to get the best answers. You ask a good question, you get good answers. You ask a bad question, you're not necessarily going to get helpful answers. So when we think about research, we have a whole set of well-designed and articulated methods that we use to try to get the best information possible. And the way we ask the question influences the types of conclusions that we can draw from the answers. So some of those answers are purely descriptive. If I want to know how happy people generally feel in the world, that's a descriptive question. So I have to use particular methods to ask that. And then that's really essentially a frequency question. How often does this happen? I might be interested in an association-based question. How is this connected to that? How is mental health connected to spiritual growth? And how am I thinking about, what does that mean, spiritual growth? Is it church attendance? Is it how much I pray? Is it my meditation? Is it personal worship? Is it scripture reading? There's so many ways to measure that item. And mental health is broad like that too. So you have to be really specific about the question that you're asking. But just because two ideas, two concepts, two variables is the way we would talk about that within the research context are related, doesn't mean we know why they're related. So an association-based question helps us know these two things are connected, but not necessarily which is informing it, or is another third variable informing both of those things. And then when we think about experiments, we're talking about holding lots of things constant and manipulating one small variable. So If I really wanted to ask a rigorous question about how prayer is connected to mental health, say levels of depression, I would try to get a really great sample of people to do this study with. And then I would actually assign some people to pray and ask some people maybe not to pray. And then I would look to see, okay, like having done that, now do we see a difference? Because we've held everything else constant. We've tried to say these groups are as similar as possible and we're just trying to change this one thing. And that helps us be more confident that, oh, yeah, no, it's actually prayer that's doing that. Now, that study really hasn't happened, and there's a number of reasons why. But I'm trying to give you some specifics so that what I'm talking about is a little clearer. Oh, yeah. The specifics are super helpful. And I think that is really good for people who might feel a little suspicious about Mm. the idea of a psychological experiment. But we do, not to belittle what you do in the least, but just for a listener, Like if you have a big family and you're trying to decide what to have for dinner, you might have several conversations where you ask specific questions or whatever. Everybody does this in their daily life when they want to get somewhere or in a workplace or whatever. It's just the within psychology, there's a really rigorous methodological way of doing this and very specific ways to ask like better questions. And like you're talking about getting more specific and helping people answer well. And you've done a lot of research about forgiveness. And what helps people forgive? And what are the outcomes when they do forgive? Can you like walk us through a little bit of that? And the work that I've done, we thought a lot about what are the mechanisms and what are kind of initial prompts we can give folks to see 
what kind of impact that has on how forgiving they are towards others. So sometimes that's looked like just observing whether or not people have forgiven and how that unfolds in their life and what kind of outcomes are associated with that. That's less experimental. The experimental approach is really saying, okay, we want you to think about the person in a particular way. So do we want you to ruminate about that offense? Rumination is one of those things that a lot of folks just do naturally. This is one of those stuck points for people, stuck thinking about the thing that the person did that was wrong towards them. So that's like a rumination approach. So think about that. Think about all the things they did to you that were hurtful. Think about all the impact that it had emotionally, maybe financially, maybe relationally. Relationally, what did you lose? So we can prompt people to think on the negative outcomes of that transgression, and that tends to promote rumination. On the other side, we could ask people to do more of a benefit-finding approach. Sometimes when folks experience hard things, they grow, they learn. What did you learn from this experience? What are some of the unexpected gifts? What's a new way that you think about yourself or the world? Or what's a new relationship that came out of that? And so we can encourage people to focus on those benefits or the positive outcomes. Alternatively, we can ask them to shift the way they're thinking about the person that hurt them. And that really involves a, a compassionate reappraisal. So instead of thinking about the person that harmed you and maybe totalizing them in terms of their offense, what a liar. What a cheat, What a, whatever the word is, to really think about that person as someone who's in need of a positive transformation. And if you're a person of faith, maybe it's wrapped up in that for you. If you're not a person of faith, we can still think about how people need to grow and change and learn. So how could you think about that person as needing growth, as needing change, and wish them well in that while still holding them accountable for the action that they engaged in. Because the folks, myself and the folks that I work with really see this as part of the essential quality of forgiveness is still holding people accountable for their actions. A need to recognize that I can forgive you and not necessarily say, okay, we're back to square one. I trust you wholeheartedly. We don't want to excuse an offense. We don't want to minimize the impact of an offense. We do find that when we ask people to engage in compassionate reappraisal and benefit finding, they endorse more forgiveness. They are quicker to say, yes, I do forgive that person. I, I want good things for them. I don't hold bitterness or grudges against them. There's some differential effects around what happens physiologically for people. So that's one of the things I'm really interested in is what happens in the body when we promote different kinds of thinking around transgressions. But both methods are really good at reducing the psychological tension or pain around around an offense. And both are good at reducing the physiological arousal as well. Example you're giving right now, it's really easy to see how that could have real practical implications in the mm-hmm. therapy office. Is there a pipeline from the from research folks mm. to the clinicians, what's the relationship between research and what happens in a therapy office? That's a good question. So the folks who are really grounded in the psychological research in their training are going to be using those resources to help inform their approaches. So if I was in the therapy office with someone and they were bringing something to me and I was like, whoa, like I don't haven't 
really done a lot with that, then I'm going to do a search in the psychological literature. I'm going to consume some of that research so that I can think about how to translate that. There's also some great folks. I'm not really one of them, but there are some great folks out there who are taking the psychological literature, the research literature, and translating that into resources that are maybe more palatable for the average clinician. So that might look like a manual or it might look like a trade book that really talks through approaches in the literature and how that could be translated really well into the therapy room. So Everett Worthington is an example of just a top-notch researcher who then also spends a lot of time and resources of his own work really pouring that into books that were accessible for clinicians as well as for lay folks to think about in this example of forgiveness. Yeah. And I just want to say before I forget that anyone listening could do a super deep dive on your forgiveness research because we have all those resources and I'll link to them in the show notes on this conversation so that someone wants to deep dive in your forgiveness research, they totally can. There are different kinds of therapy approaches. Cognitive behavioral therapy is very popular and that comes up a lot. I have an app on my phone called Sanvelo that my insurance pays for, which is cool. (laughs) But it basically walks through different CBT tools helping to combat depression and anxiety. Traditional like psychotherapy, is that what's called still? Psychoanalytic? Oh, psychoanalytic or psychodynamic. I would put all of these approaches under the umbrella of talk therapy. And that would have started more of as a psychoanalytic tradition, moved to psychodynamic. You would have gotten a reaction against that and come up with the behaviorism movement. From there, that moved to cognitive. Then we integrated cognitive and behavioral and put those together. Then we have the humanists that came in there and said, no, what matters is the relationship. And now we have maybe what we would call kind of some of these third wave cognitive behavioral therapies like acceptance and commitment therapy or dialectical behavior therapy or some of the existential and positive psychology movement stuff that's coming out. Yeah. And so you might have a therapist that's like very committed to one approach. And then it seems like there's a lot of therapists that are just drawing on all these different streams of thought as tools for different situations, doing a buffet thing. So do you have advice if someone's never been in therapy before and they're thinking Mm. about pursuing therapy for sort of navigating that? Like we just throw out like a bunch of terms and stuff, but sort of tools for discerning. Is this a good therapist for me? Is this a good therapist Mm. in general? (laughs) If someone feels like ill-equipped to discern that. I usually encourage folks that I know who are looking for therapists and are maybe doing that for the first time that they should be thinking about what their values are and whether those values align with the therapeutic approach or the person that they're connected with. Do you feel connected and safe with the person that you're meeting with? That's really important. And if you don't, find somebody else. Like it's okay to try somebody out and then say, you know, I don't think this is really it. And therapists are going to be like, great. I wish you well as you go. You do not need to feel like you are going to hurt somebody's feelings because you met with them twice and you said, actually, I think I need this or I don't know what I need, but I'm not getting it. Right. That's okay. I also really encourage folks that if they've been in a therapeutic relationship for a while and they don't feel like it's going anywhere anymore to be really open about that and have a conversation about that is also a skill that people don't always feel comfortable with. But in terms of kind of that first assessment, if talking with someone who shares some element of your identity is important to you, I think folks should go for that. Like whether that's 
a faith identity, whether that's an LGBTQIA identity, a racial ethnic identity, those things are really valuable. And therapists are going to understand that mm-hmm. and be fine with that mm-hmm. need or request. And actually, a person that you meet with once or twice would probably be happy to give you recommendations for what maybe might be more useful for you. Mm-hmm. So values, thinking about identity pieces, thinking about training, I think is important. There are great therapists at a lot of different levels, but they're going to have different approaches. And this is confusing for a lot of people, whether they're looking for a therapist, thinking about being a therapist. There's just a lot of options out there. Someone with a social work degree is going to be way more formed by thinking about social systems. They're going to just, that's just part of their DNA, advocacy around those systems. And if that feels like a really important thing for you, working with a clinician with that background could be really helpful. If thinking about evidence-based practice and research is really important to you, you're probably going to want to look for somebody with some sort of doctorate in psychology. That's probably going to be the best formation around those things. I have a personal bent towards that, but that's my (laughs) training. So of course I'm going to see the benefits of that. And certainly I know lots of wonderful therapists at other training levels and experiences. The CBT framework, cognitive behavioral therapy, is going to be more structured. So if you're a person that values structure, that's probably going to feel more comfortable for you. You There's probably going to be some homework. There's probably going to be some things you're asked to do between sessions. If that feels really stifling to you, then maybe that's not your best fit. And that's okay too. Like find somebody who's going to dig in with you to some of the relational pieces or fill in the blank for the things that feel really meaningful. Totally. Does that get at what you are Totally. No, I think that's really good and really helpful. And I'm also like, if you're not fully comfortable, even if you can't quite put your finger on it, that's okay too. And usually you'll make arrangements like scheduling or whatever over email. And so I think it's really, (laughs) if people feel that permission to like go once or twice and then say, send an email and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go in another direction. Thank you. I just want to restate that. You don't have to worry about hurting someone's feelings. It's better you go find someone who you really click with. Because I've had the experience for just talking about my personal experience in case it's helpful for people, where I had to do a little shopping around. I had a therapist that I loved close her private practice for another job. When I first saw her, I was like going through a real rough time personally. And she really used more CBT in the beginning to get like the symptoms of depression under control. And then we didn't do very much of that after a few weeks. And we did more talking and talking it out. And also, I wanted the right level of someone who would push back on what I was saying a little bit, not in a gentle, appropriate way, but like asking me great pointed questions. And prior to that, I'd seen a therapist where she hardly ever did that. It was just a space for me to talk. And maybe some people leave a session like that and say, oh, it felt so good to get all that out. But I would feel sort of lonely about it. I would finish the session and be like, oh, I wanted someone to be like, more present in the room with me and having a dialogue more, you know, that was a learning experience. These are just, these are different styles of therapists, of people. But then once you do find the right fit, it's amazing. Like, you're like, this is great. It can blow things open, can't it? It's such a great experience to have a good therapist and doing a little work and research, which can be hard if you're especially going through a hard time. It's, It's worth it. The other thing I would add to that is just, it's okay to ask somebody, what is your approach? Yeah, just How do straight you think out, about some honest right. questions and like That's very right. forward questions, yeah. And that is totally fine. And if you don't think their answer is going to jive with you, then that's okay. 
Yeah. Now let's talk yeah. about like some Christian stuff. Like what, if you don't know, like psychology.com, or there's like a huge database sure. of therapists and some of them say Christian therapy or like put that as a tag on their profile. I don't know exactly what that means as a tag or whatever, but neither do they. What I take that as is they want someone, a person of Christian faith to be comfortable reaching out to them and not feel like they're going to have their faith pushed aside or pushed back on. If someone wants to see a therapist who's a Christian how would they yeah. approach that that search? One, if you're involved in a faith community and mental health is a safe conversation within that faith community, and that's an important caveat. If mental health is a safe conversation in your faith community, ask for resources from your faith community because they probably know some folks that's right. who are in line with the things that would be helpful for you. A lot of pastors keep a list of that's referrals right. around that you could get access to. That's right. You could go cold call, kind of look on the Psychology Today website and do the search in your area. That's a good starting point, but could give you a really wide swath, a really wide bench of what that might mean because Christianity is a wide tent, right? That's probably the bottom line is that label can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And even within folks who identify as Christian and practice in mental health, that means a lot of different things. And the types of things they're interested in and willing to do or think are appropriate vary quite a bit. It could be anything from praying with folks in session. Some Christian therapists would never do that. And some folks would be, I couldn't have a session without that. So <laughs> it really looks very very different on the faith tradition and the formation that mm -hmm. folks have received. So there's not a super easy answer to that question. You could say in that first test session or whatever, my faith is really important to me. And I want to talk about my faith and be supported in my faith in my therapy and see what they say, right? I mean, I ask every person that I see if there's anything they want to tell me about their spirituality or their faith practices. And some say, nope, that's not something I want to talk about. And others are like, I'm so glad you asked. This is how I think about my faith. And I'm mm -hmm. like, great. How would you like that to be a part of what we do? Or mm -hmm. would you like that to be a part of what we do? Because I want the person who I'm seeing to take the lead on what they feel comfortable with. I'm probably comfortable with a pretty wide range of Christian practices, but I'm also really comfortable not integrating that into my time with people. So I, and some have been really great about asking me out front, how do you approach this? And then I give them all the options and mm -hmm. then we can talk about what feels like a good fit. So I would definitely say, bring it up. If it's important to you, whatever it is, certainly the Christian part, but any part, bring it up. Even if the person's like, well, I haven't done that before, but I'd be open to, then you might still be like, I really like this person in another way and they are open to that. So let's give it a shot. Or you might be like, you know, I really need somebody who has expertise in this. So mm -hmm. you're not my person. Yeah. People are just going to listen to us and be like, email you and be like, will you be my therapist, Lindsay? I'm only licensed in the state of Michigan. So sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that right now. Uh, good to know. Good to know. There are questions around uh, mental health problems and Christians experiencing mental health problems, mental illness. And I think that you were alluding to that sometimes mental health conversations yep. and therapy are not safe conversations to have in churches where, you know, there might be assumptions that it's negative spiritual forces or demons, or maybe you're not having enough faith. Anxiety is a big one, right? Because Jesus tells us to not be afraid. And then people are experiencing like medical crises level anxiety, especially 
now it's like ubiquitous. How would you respond to a question like that? And I don't know if maybe we should back up one step and define what we're talking about. I think mental illness can be sort of a funny term. Is it like getting a cold? It doesn't seem like it. It's not like your brain is infected with a medical illness, but there could be, I don't know, you talk, not me, (laughs) because you're more of an I'm not going to start trying to parse these things out, which are very difficult to parse out. They're complicated. It is. I appreciate that. Yeah. How would you respond to someone who's trying to think through these things as a Christian coming from maybe an environment where there's been questions like that, like can someone struggle with anxiety or depression as a Christian when God asks us to rejoice and be not afraid? I tend to think about people, right, as biological, psychological, social, and spiritual beings. And those things all intertwine together. It seems like a false overlay to me to say that somehow everything is spiritual. Now, can everything have a spiritual dimension to it? Sure. Absolutely. Can the way I treat my body and live physically be connected to my spirituality? It absolutely can. Is it entirely my spirituality? that doesn't totally make sense to me. Like I am an embodied being, but I'm still engaged with the spiritual, whether that's a faith tradition or not, right? Something bigger than me, something transcendent, those pieces. And in the similar way, can my relationships have a spiritual dimension to them? Absolutely. I can engage in worship with other people. We can talk about spiritual things. I might be motivated because of the things I believe theologically or spiritually to interact with people in a particular way. And that might be embedded in that. But is it entirely spiritual? That doesn't quite make sense to me either because we're human beings connecting with each other and talking. And there's just purely social elements to that. And the psychological is the same to me. As I think about how people engage in the way that they think and the way that they feel, some of that is certainly connected to our neuroscience, right? Our nervous system, what's happening in our brain, things that we talk about like neurotransmitters and what has historically been called a chemical imbalance, right? That there Mm -hmm. are physical things that are happening. And when those physical things change, that changes our lived experience, right? That's the bottom line between the neuroscience and the psychology or the lived feeling. And when I engage in a spiritual practice, that can impact the way I feel emotionally. So those things are also true. And when I believe things deeply about God or the way the world works, that will influence the way I see the world and see myself. Is that the only thing that influences the way I see the world and see myself? I don't think so. So they think it's a little bit tricky. So it's helpful to keep all these things together. Not so separated out, but so interconnected. Whatever you think a human person is, all these aspects intersect in a way that's a little bit complex and really hold them together and not like so far apart. That's what you're saying. So sorry, did I cut you off? No, that's great. No, I like the way you just summarized what I was trying to say. Very related to what you're saying is I think behind this question of can a genuine Christian struggle with mental health problems is this idea of sin. And if it's a if it's an illness, you're not culpable. It's if you get an illness, it's not you're not it's not like your it's not your fault your fault that you got an illness. But if it's a sin, it is something that's your fault. I think it might be helpful to say it's not so black and white. That's hard to hold together. But culpability for something is maybe more on a spectrum, meaning you have things that are under your control and you have things that are not under your control. Like you might have an outburst on your family 
because you didn't eat lunch all day. And they got kind of hangry along the way. (laughs) And so just thinking less black and white about those things. I appreciate that. I think there's a couple of things that I would say mm-hmm. about that. I think there are some interesting parallels that we can make with physical illnesses. Type 1 diabetes. You're born with type 1 diabetes. There's nothing you do to get rid of type 1 diabetes, but you're responsible for how you take care of yourself. And if you don't engage in the things that we know from the medical community that are going to help you be healthier, you're going to have more downstream effects that are going to get harder mm-hmm. to deal with physically. Mm-hmm. Some people can eat, live, exercise, not exercise in any given way and never develop type 2 diabetes. And some people can't. Some people, if they live in a particular way, they're more prone to that. It's an interaction effect, we call it, right? Where you've got maybe a genetic predisposition and some things that you're doing behaviorally and some things that are maybe happening in your environment because of maybe the kinds of foods that are available to you and maybe your your love of socioeconomic status. And all these things come together. So Could there have maybe been something that you could have done to prevent that illness? Maybe, but that's not where we are. So thinking about that isn't super helpful. What can you do right now to deal with what's in front of you? Totally. Similar situation, let's say with substance abuse. This is one of those things that if you never engage in a substance, yep, you're not going to be addicted to that substance. (laughs) But some people could do a substance many times and never be addicted. And others could do it once or twice and they're stuck. So there's this whole interaction. And once that happens, your brain, your physiology, whatever has changed to some degree. And now you have to work with what you've got. So I really encourage people to think about where they are and what they can do from where they are, rather than trying to do a lot of that retrospective, retroactive. Yeah. Where did this come from? Yeah. Am I culpable for this? Is this my fault? You know, you, you might need to wrestle with those questions. But ultimately, some of those questions can be a distraction because they're not really helping you be the healthiest version of yourself and move forward, you know, into what God's calling you to afford to use maybe some more explicitly Christian language. And I like that you brought up like the genetic stuff, too. I think I remember from you talking about your research during our thesis, like there's even some genetic factors that make it easier for people to forgive. And that doesn't mean that, oh, I automatically forgive everyone if I have this, what's the word you use? Genetic dispositions. It might be a little bit easier for you, but there's, it's still not the only factor, right? And it doesn't take me off the hook if I don't have that. And it doesn't make it impossible. You know, there are theologians, C.S. Lewis talked about this, right? He talked about how some of us are just maybe more prone towards particular ways of being in the world. And so it might be easier or harder depending on that for us, but we're still called to live into a holier life or whatever language you might want. That's really good and really helpful. Can I give you one other last thought is that if folks are looking for maybe a deeper dive into some of this, there's a book I would recommend, which is called Grace for the Afflicted. Have you come across that? I've heard of it. I've been sitting here. I'm like, actually, the conclusion of the matter is we just need to give grace to each other, no matter what the problem is. If it's anxiety, if it's diabetes, if it's whatever kind of problem it is, we just need to have grace on each other because we don't know what, you know, what the factors are. But sorry, the book is by a neuroscientist and a Christian, and he talks about kind of some of these questions and how the church has struggled in some of these areas to give that grace to folks and think about mental health and it deserves attention and it's not purely a spiritual domain. So if someone's looking for a slower walk through on some of these things, I think it would be probably a helpful resource. Awesome. Thanks. I'll find it online and link to it too. So what is the role of the church in someone who's a committed 
who's a highly engaged Christian, very engaged in their church and feels they should go to their pastor first for counseling. I'll start by saying too, that like different churches have different policies on this. There are denominational differences where Mm -hmm. they have a policy where you should never do more than three counseling sessions with a pastor and then you get referred. There are some that have no rules that will just counsel, counsel, counsel as long as it's needed or whatever. So there's differences for what the pastor will do given the policies of the church. The best pastoral engagement around mental health is supportive. It's really great listening. It's speaking to the spiritual elements of that experience and providing support and biblical connections around that. And scripture is actually a pretty rich resource to think about just the human experience. Is it exhaustive? It's actually not. But can you find really great support there? Yeah, I think you can. Those are the key things for me. And I hope that more and more within the church, we're seeing pastors who are being trained in some basic kind of crisis mental health and having a better understanding of what resources are available. Honestly, some of this comes from the fact that the church for so long was historically the primary place where this kind of work could happen. For much more of human history, that has been the case than it has not been. And so it's a shift within church culture and context to think about, well, what are the resources that are available and how can I connect people with those resources more effectively? Because even within psychology or psychiatry, we haven't been doing this all that long and the church has been around a lot longer, right? Now, I think we're equipped to do it because that's what we're studying and learning and exploring. So I think these resources are rich. But I have a lot of empathy for pastors who maybe haven't gotten that training or don't maybe have the awareness. And I'm hoping and I'm seeing some movement that folks are getting more awareness of the types of referrals that are appropriate so that they can be making those at the right times. And what do you think in terms of the community, like just a layperson who's not necessarily in leadership, what are some ways that I guess it depends on what the situation is, like what the problem is. But how can a community be a good support system? Maybe just by being in a community. We all need like good friends, right? We call that social support. We all need social support. Yeah. What does good social support look like? There's some individual difference around how much kind of social support people want. So that is, that's real. I think one of the ways you get good social support is by giving good social support. A relationship where you're open and listen, like give that and then ask for that. Good social support looks like seeing and knowing and hearing the people that you're in relationship with and taking the time to do that, which can be hard because there's a lot of demands on our time and a lot of things calling for our attention. And some of them honestly are easier than human to human relationships. Some of the things calling on our time or, or asking for our attention are just easier to control than a whole other person. But there's something about that person to person engagement that seems to be really important for mental health, for physical health, for lots of things. Something I think of that I just want to say out loud is like, You mentioned good listening from the pastor, good listening in these social support situations. And that means like not assuming you understand what the other person's going through and not assuming they have the same personality that you do. (laughs) Yeah, I think that can you can go wrong in a couple of ways on that. You can either be like, that is so foreign to me, I can't understand it. And just like hands off. Or you can think, oh, I've been through that. I know exactly what that's like. And either of those extremes isn't great. Neither one, because even if you and I, Sarah, have the same experience, if the same thing happens to us, the way that we perceive it, think about it, feel about it might look different 
And so what I really encourage people to do is be as curious as possible about the other person's experience. And yeah, like offer that if your own experience is relevant, but first to be really interested in what their experience is best. Ask them questions before you say anything prescriptive or whatever, Tim, you know. Right. Sometimes you can do a little, this is pretty gimmicky, but it sometimes helps people to think about it. Like do a little, what we call drive-through talking. It's just a little reflective listening, right? When you go through the drive-through order, you say, here's what I want. And what does the person on the other side of the drive-through say? Okay, I've got a burger, fries, a chicken sandwich, and a chocolate milkshake. Anything else? So in your interpersonal relationships, Siri, I heard you say that you're really struggling with X, Y, and Z. Did I get that right? Is there anything else I'm missing? Like, and it can feel a little bit worse, but it's actually really helpful. And when you say to somebody, like, this is what I heard you say, it says, I'm really listening to you and I care that I got it right. That goes a long way. That's really good. So there was one more question about these different types of counselors, like pastor, which we kind of talked about. There's the biblical counseling movement. And then, but maybe let's first talk about a Christian psychologist versus a not Christian psychologist. I think we kind of addressed that earlier, right? If that's important to you to have a Christian psychologist, just ask them or go the referral route through your church or maybe another local church. If your church doesn't have a resource list, maybe email someone on staff at another church who has one. Because I think there's fear that a secular psychologist will not have respect for your morals or your values in such a way. And so I guess maybe that's just restating what we said earlier. Is there anything more to add on that? Yeah, I would say that for most secular psychologists that I know and that I've seen out in the world and in practice are going to be respectful of whatever your personal beliefs are. That said, there is some research out there that would reveal that when folks are in a therapeutic relationship with someone who shares their values, they do tend to do better than when they're with someone who doesn't share those values. And part of that might just be shared language or understanding or just a, you know, you're kind of already in tune on some things and that might just make it a little bit easier. Yeah. And then, I don't know, the biblical counseling movement, I know a little bit about. Did you, do you want to share anything about what that is or... Absolutely. The biblical counseling movement would say that language I was using earlier, that everything is spiritual, that would be something that you would be likely to hear from a biblical counselor. And a biblical counselor would use really only scripture and see scripture as sufficient to solve all of life's problems, all psychological problems, all relational problems. The belief from this camp would be that to go outside of that is to kind of be extra biblical in a way that is problematic for them. If you went to a biblical counselor for your depression, for example, they would bring you back to theological, they would bring you back to uh, scripture verses, they might ask you to do some memorization of scripture, things that we might not think are bad things. Like I think scripture memorization is great, but that would be their treatment and their intervention, which would be very different than the approach that someone who is not a biblical counselor would take, that someone who identifies as a Christian therapist or a Christian psychologist would take. That biblical counselor label is probably one of the most narrow that I know. You are actually going to be pretty sure you know what you're going to get if that's what you're going to do. Although some could be more gentle and some might be. Totally. Several years back, I had a lot of exposure to this movement and there was more emphasis on personal responsibility in a way that was a little bit, I felt hesitant 
to approve of because of all the things we talked about earlier, the complicated factors, not everyone practices the same way, like you said. And actually, I was like pretty blessed by some of their use of scripture in ways I hadn't thought of before. But the idea that a professional psychologist couldn't at least have something to add to that is misguided. And because we go to professionals all the time to do all kinds of things. And based on what you were describing earlier, the type of research that psychologists do to inform their clinical practice, we've observed 100,000 anxious people and found that when they did this thing, it made their anxiety less. That's like going to your doctor and having them prescribe an antibiotic or (laughs) telling you to go to the gym or something. We go to professionals for help in all kinds of ways that I think God has gifted different people to have different gifts to help people through different kinds of struggles. You know, there's nothing anti-scripture about going to someone who's been professionally trained. If I break my leg, I mean, this is a little bit of a strong example, but if I break my leg, I want my pastor to pray for me, but I don't want him to set my bone. Like, so I would love to be able to be open with my pastor, with my spiritual director, whoever that is in my life about the things that I'm dealing with. But I also don't want to make them responsible for things that are really not what they're gifted to do or called to do. And and I don't want to confuse that. And I don't want them to confuse that, honestly. In my mind, the biblical counselor is using scripture predominantly as a therapeutic tool. And I think that scripture can have therapeutic properties, but I actually don't think that's the primary purpose of scripture. It might be to sanctify me. It might be to help me know who God is. It might be to help me live more fully as a human being in the world, but it isn't necessarily to make me less depressed. So there's almost like a undersell on what scripture is and can be when we use it only in that way. That's a really good point. Especially right now, I feel like there's more awareness and conversation nationally around mental health crises because COVID, I mean, mental health is something you can talk to your regular doctor or physician about if you have a general practitioner and they should be able to assess you and give you referrals. Primary care doctors are getting a lot more training in how to engage around mental health with folks. So that's good. That's super good. And also a lot of people don't know that if they have health insurance, that their health insurance will probably cover some mental health services. And a lot of employers have employee assistance programs that will help you get a couple of sessions that are free and then might connect you with somebody more long-term. Well, thanks so much for your time, Lindsay. Really appreciate you doing this. Absolutely, my pleasure. Happy to. Mm-hmm.